I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race. Joining me today are two of my Sanctum sisters who I haven't seen but for screens for 12 weeks, 12 long weeks. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Lucy Race. I can't believe it's been 12 weeks, but I can. (laughs) 12 weeks or 12 years. Hi, I'm Nicole Hayes. And time, as we say, has lost all meaning, but really, really at the moment, hasn't it, because of these finals that are happening somewhere else. So, Do you want me to blow your tiny minds? Because I know we don't do stats here, but we've lost all sense of time and then daylight savings just came right in to kick us up the date and we don't do many stats here but this is our 35th episode for the year we started this season's podcast on the 2nd of February when coronavirus was just the twinkle in the eye of a bat and now we've had so far this year two weeks off while the AFLM took 12 weeks off so the saying it's not a sprint it's a marathon comes to mind but it's the kind of marathon where you have to kind of call a code brown in your running shorts at the 12K mark, I reckon. <laughs> That's what this marathon has felt like. It's the one where you get to the end and they say, another lap, another lap. <laughs> they ring that bell, exactly. Yep. Like, oh, well, you know, the only reason you run a marathon is so you can talk about it, so I can't <laughs> let this opportunity pass me by. And what I can say is when I did run a marathon, I was finishing on the MCG, I got to Brunton Avenue, so I was maybe... Oh, 800 metres from the finish line and I just wanted to sit down. It was the overwhelming urge. So I, all I want to do is sit down now and not get to the end of the pod. Did you feel like that during the Harry, Harry Potter movie marathon you were doing as well, Nicole? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually fell asleep a few times, so that, I guess that's the equivalent, isn't it? No. No, I loved it. It was immersive and fabulous. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's a point where you just go, yeah, I'm done, thanks. We're getting close to that point. But what is fantastic is that the finals that were dished up on the weekend were spectacular. All the challenges won and the highest margin was 16 points, which is so unusual this season. There's been some blowouts, but it was 16 points in the Ports-Cats game. So just a reminder for everyone playing at home, Port beat the Cats, Lions beat Tigers, Saints beat Dogs and Pies beat Eagles by one point. Lucy, what were your highlights? There were so many moments that made me smile. Um, I've distilled them down to three for you. So my first is Brisbane's good kicking. I talked last week about how the last time they played Richmond, they were very inaccurate in front of goal. They turned that around this time and particularly Charlie Cameron, his three goals, his second goal, which was right on half time. So there's one point in the game. There's a stoppage. He is just so mobile at that stoppage, reads it beautifully, kicks a goal on a tight angle. And I thought that was just superb. My second is also a goal kicking highlight, which was Brody Majacek. So Collingwood were five points down with nine minutes to go. And kind of against the play, Majacek kicks the most beautiful goal on his left foot from just, you know, inside the 50. And again, on an angle, it sailed through beautifully. Everybody knows left footers do it better. It just looked oh, so totally much better, doesn't it? Beautiful. It just had a lovely kind of Beckham bend on it. It was beautiful. And my third is 
or my first, I don't know which way I'm going, <laughs> it was a <laughs> St Kilda highlight. So there was a passage of play at the end of the second quarter that involved about four or five players and resulted in a rider goal. I don't know if you remember watching this, but the ball comes out along the boundary. Marshall kind of just tapped it back into play. Then Hill did a little kick forward. Smith socketed it back to Hill, who picked it up. And then I think it went to Ross, then to Loney who kicked it to Ryder, he kicks a goal. And I just sat there going, gosh, this game can be beautiful. And it really spoke to, I guess, the optimism that I think the Saints play with. So special mention to Liam Ryan, who makes me smile every time I watch him play. How about you, Nick? Oh, look, they all could have made it into mine, but um, luckily we talked about this before, so I'm not going to double up. <laughs> so I cheat a little bit because we always cheat, right? But my number one starts my as in my one vote. So this is, just to be clear, one vote. I can't go past the Charlie Dixon moment where he literally takes a front row seat <laughs> to watch his own game. And, it, and just the look on his face, he genuinely looks like he's settling in for the moment. And everyone around him is going, yeah, fair enough. Okay. If you pause it when he sits down and you look at the faces of the people around him, Fantastic. it is joy. It's pure joy. <laughs> so, you know, and just the acrobatics of the way he just flipped over like this was planned all along. So that was absolutely, I mean, it just added to the excitement of, of what was, you know, it had some very nice um, passages of play. I mean, the outcome was the of all of them, that was the biggest margin, but there was some good football there. Two votes go to Hugh McCluggage. I just have fun saying his name. So that's that's one reason. But also he's just always there. Like he's all over the ground. He's he set up some of those Charlie Cameron goals, or at least one of them anyway. He missed an early one, a bit of a sitter, but then he ended up kicking the sealer. I just love how he just shows up every week. And you know, and he's in the all Australian squad for a good reason. I know I'm not really saying anything that nobody already knows, but I do feel like he kind of a little bit under a bit more under the radar with the Camerons and the Lockie Neals. Like he's got a lot of comp- competition there. So I'm giving him my two votes. My three votes are for finals footy, just broadly, because I have to say, you know, it does feel different and it's, you know, we're already in October before it started. Um, So there's a whole lot of things that are quite different and there's not obviously no games in Melbourne, which for we mad footy fans, that's a bit of a challenge. But the quality of the, the players really lifted the quality of the, you know, the skills were higher. There was better goal kicking. The atmosphere of those crowds, you know, given that they're all reduced and they're not able to produce the sort of numbers that they usually do because of the all of the social distancing, I just thought they really brought it. The crowds brought it, mm. the players brought it, and the excitement levels were through the roof. So it really did feel like finals football, and I wasn't sure it would. So finals footy, you get my three votes. Special mention to Ash Barty seeing the cheering the, the Tigers in the crowd, which is just pure bogan and pure love. It was just great. Beautiful. So, they're my three. I've never been more jealous of a person in my life than Ash Barty with a beer in a plastic cup, standing up and cheering on for her team. It's a it's a formative part of my actual being that I haven't been able to exercise this year and it's killed me. So I'm glad she was able to do it and because she's, you know, number one, she does it so well, doesn't she? Um, my highlight I'm going to give one vote to Damien Hardwick missing the S. Or do you think he was on a call or do you think he forgot? What? Where was he? What happened? I feel like it would be pretty well, I think he was at the toilet. Yeah. It's the kind of thing it had to have been. How many things are there that you simply cannot do in like five minutes that he had to do then? I, I imagine it was quite an urgent toilet call. <laughs> so funny. It made me really laugh. Two votes for me goes to Mason Cox for his three goals early and then the strut. He just had, I, I love seeing people with long levers kicking straight like it looks so perfect right he just has this like steely I want to dislike him so much but I can't I just think and he just has this like yep and that's what I was gonna do all along and I just I was like wow this is a very exciting way to start a game um but my three votes goes to Chris Fagan's face when the siren went arms in the air dad glasses on his head over the shop it was fantastic but it could have equally been Brett Ratton saying I aged between five and ten extra years in the last ten minutes of that game because I think we all did when the Saints just looked like they were going to fall over in those last ten minutes it was absolutely soul crushing which made the win even better 
So there was just so many highlights. Unless you're a Bulldog supporter. Unless you're a Bulldog supporter. Who Probably less fun so for you. I really think Bulldogs went in that thinking we've got this and it was a rude shock to them. So my concern is whether or not the final, the next games are going to stack up because they often don't. But before we get to them, because I want you guys to preview who you think will win and why, the funniest thing was when the fixture came out for the finals this weekend coming, we all spent so long on the group chat in a spin asking is the fixture in in DST in EST or in AEST we can't <laughs> It's the final at 9.40 Victorian time. I'm so confused. Someone's bound to show up late. Like it's going to happen. Somebody's (laughs) going to miss the start of the game because it was so complicated. Well, that's why I've instilled that new policy where we all need to just sit down at maybe 5 p.m. Melbourne time. Synchronise our clocks. Turn on the TV and just wait. Right. Just and wait. it will happen. So we have just to sit, sit through Better Homes and Gardens. We have to just do what we normally do and just ring Lucy and ask her what time it is in, in whatever region of the world and she'll just tell us on the spot because she knows things. You like are that. the big sister of the pod. So going into Friday night, Lucy, I imagine that the Tigers taking on the Saints is a big one in your household given that you live with a bunch of Tigers. Yes, it is a big one. It's interesting. This game will be on the Goldie. That is because Richmond requested to play there and it's just over the road from where they're staying. So that's very convenient for them. So there's been lots of discussions about how they get that ground. I don't really care because it's on the Gold Coast. So the Tigers will get Lynch back, which is very good, I think, because I really think they missed him last week. I think the Tigers really struggled with their inside 50s and I think that Lynch will make them a much more balanced team going forward. The Saints are going to be without Paddy Ryder, which is so disappointing and we are all just, yeah, I'm looking at the faces of my little podcasters down the Zoom camera and it's devastating. We're so sad for him. They'll also miss Jake Carlisle, who's heading home for the birth of his baby, and potentially Ben Long, who at this stage is suspended for a week, but on Wednesday night St Kilda is appealing that, so we don't know. These two teams played each other back in round four, back in June, and the Saints won by 26 points. Interestingly, Paddy Ryder didn't play in that game. That was a game, I don't know if you remember, but Dan Butler had a field day against his old team, and I would say that the Saints really out-pressured the Tigers, but the Tigers have regained so much form since then. So that was back when the Tigers really hadn't sort of hit their straps. And I think it'll be a different story on Friday night. The Saints have got nothing to lose. And as I said before, they play with optimism. I think, you know, they'll just throw everything at it. And I think this will come down to what headspace the Tigers are in. I'll tell you later. You live in a mostly cats household they take on the pies on saturday they must have been a bit bruised and battered your cats family on the weekend Um, they probably didn't expect to lose so half of them left before the last five minutes so i don't know if that tells you i know i did not teach them well because that is a thing that i do not do but we before that even starts though we've got we've got the jumper clash that is a contest that's already um starting to play out and i don't know if you remember last last year when eddie mcguire explained that there was a gentleman's agreement and expression from the last century that which is um, probably should And that's when there. the agreement was actually made in the last it century. It was made in the last century and that's where that expression belongs. But apparently where the cats were going to wear, uh, they were meant to wear mostly white. And, of course, it was before the pies changed their stripes so that they are actually more white. So, that, you know, that's complicated things. The cats deny there was ever a, such a, um, a conversation. Either way, they've said it's in the hands of the AFL. So, and we all know how resistant to pressure from Collingwood that the AFL is. So, it'll be a very big surprise when we see Collingwood run out in their original stripes. Uh, last year, the last time it, it was quite a mess. Like visually, it was really hard to see. The cats wore the blue shorts, and the and the pies wore the whites, and the stripes were almost. It's like a game of dots and crosses. It's the migraine game. Like, <laughs> so, Nick, who do you think will win it between the cats and the pies? We've got a couple of big issues at play here. So, obviously, Mason Cox was outstanding on the weekend, and if he can follow up with that he'll be very hard to to keep quiet there's question marks over Grundy he didn't start in the third and fourth quarter um Darcy Cameron did instead Nathan Buckley says he's fit as a fiddle and and he's 100% but you have to wonder about that you wouldn't when the game was still in contest as it was literally to the final siren um you don't normally rest a player of that caliber unless there's something going on so 
you know, watch this space. And, of course, there are usual suspects in the midfield that will be hard to keep quiet for the Pies. But from the cat side of things, they've had such a weird year. When they're on, they are so on. I think they're possibly playing some of the best football across the competition. But when they're off, they're really off. And as we saw with Hawkins, missed five shots. Danger was quiet. We never didn't sort of see a peek out of Ablett on the weekend. So those players will have to be at their best. Joel Selwood has a dislocated finger and he's had surgery on that. Friday, he has to sit a test. And so this would all suggest that from those bruising encounters that the Cats might not be able to step up. However, they have done remarkably well in Queensland, like both at the Gabba and on Gold Coast. So there's obviously something in the pineapple. They um, have won, like some of their belting games have been at Queensland, some of their best ones at both grounds. And also that usually the, the losing qualifier from last week generally most of the time wins in the following semi. So that would favour the Cats as well. So um, the Cats are fielding their oldest team in the AFL. Last week they fielded the oldest team in the AFL. So in, in history, I am actually going to go with the Cats just because when they do play their best football, I think they're one of the best in the competition and I don't want to see all the miserable faces in my house at the end of the day. So go Cats. Go cats. <laughs> um, and a little side note, Chris Scott looking swarthy AF. Yeah. Will he ever come back from will he ever come back from this? Or is he like I feel like he's about to take a role in the bottom beautiful. <laughs> funny you said that there was the funniest tweet last week that said each week he's looking more and more like Ridge Forrester. <laughs> I think that was my inspo to be honest. Do you know that you kick more goals in hot weather? Do you know goal scoring is more accurate in hot weather because of the way the ball flies through the air? This is actually a thing, a science thing. We should really oh, okay. have a leap here for this, but apparently it's a thing. Okay, are we ready to roll up our green sleeves and melee ladies? Yes, we are. Always. I was going to sing that, but I didn't. Um, the first thing you did allude to this earlier is that Jake Carlisle's taking some time off, Nick. It's a really it's a really interesting decision, and I think it's one that we wouldn't have seen a decade ago. Well, the decision used to always come up, but it was like a no-brainer and there was really no contest. If a partner or wife was expecting a baby that, you know, the, the football always came first. In more recent years, that's gradually changed in this idea of the, you know, we're seeing sort of now this notion of the, the whole footballer and we're looking at them or the whole person and that football is part of their life and that the family is part of that experience, but that ultimately family comes first. But it's not that long ago that Dennis Pagan basically said, you know, family comes first but not on grand final day and Darren Jolly when his daughter was due right around grand final in 2006 was actually being pressured to not um, be there at the birth of his child. Drew Petrie and this is only in 2012 actually explained that he and his wife have got it all organized because his second child was due that season and he wouldn't be missing a game. He said his wife Nicole was perfectly fine with that but he did clarify that had this been their first child he would have been prepared to miss a game. So, look, I think, you know, I don't know how that second child feels about not being I feel incensed the third child. I feel quite unseen. But Lucy's looking smug. I'm the fourth, so what hope yeah. did I have? Um, <laughs> oh, I <laughs> No, that's right. I was a second of one birth, which is even more confusing. So he definitely would have hung around for that. But look, I just think it's really interesting how we are, we have shifted significantly in terms of the way we see footballers and that they are real people, that their family life has such an impact um, on how they play. Darren Jolly said his daughter was born the day before the 2006 grand final. He said that's the worst game of football he'd ever played. He just had a baby. His head, he could not get his head into it. So you know, quite apart from the outrage of expecting someone to miss the birth of their child for, for their job, I think also realistically it's not going to bode well for their football anyway. So I, it's, a, it's a nice shift and I think we're going to see more. of. I don't think that is becoming as much of an issue as it once was. It does dish up that question that does also happen around grand final time, which is should a medal be afforded and handed to every member of the team who gets you there on grand final day because you know say the saints make the grand final and they win it does he is he enough of part of the team we hear so much conversation about you know you talk about the whole footballer and the concepts of they're not just footballers they're also people and we encourage them to have other lives well we also hear them talk about team and thank you to the team the whole team got us here so is it is it still archaic that only people who play on grand final day get the medal Lucy? I think so. I, I've, for a long time, have thought that if you've played in a season and your team goes on to win the 
premiership that you should have a premiership medal. I really believe that because it's not one on the day. There's You've got to get there first and everybody plays their part in that. And I don't understand why you need to be so exclusive about Does it. Does it extend to like assistant coaches and physio staff and... Or is it just the playing group? Coach? I would be happy if it was the, the coach and the playing group. Just the senior coach? So assistant yeah. coaches. No, no one's going to have an assistant coach next year anyway. Yeah, well, they can't they can't afford them. I sort of struggle with it for one reason and one reason only. It's just logistically you have to go back and then award all these other players for like 150 years a, oh. a medal that they didn't get. I'm thinking practically that would be really challenging. If you did it, if you're going to do it, just in the same way they did the Brownlow when they changed the rules that you could have equal winners they went back and retrospectively even though some of those players had passed on did provide that medal so there's that logistical challenge and I do still feel like there might have to be sort of a minimum requirement if you are going to go that route and it, and I suppose it's just more if a player played one game or five minutes knocked someone out and was out for 10 weeks would they still qualify you know um, like what are there rules around it how would you have any minimum criteria if I was the CEO or the coach at a club and they won the grand final, I would make medals for the team members who got us there that didn't play on grand final day. Like I'd take that upon myself and I'd say that's something they deserve something to commemorate the moment that they were there. Like I'd do it outside of the AFL anyway, I reckon. Is that a bit like And I'd stand Emma make stuff. She would definitely do that. I'd probably make that. it out of paper mache. <laughs> I've still got my beads of glory, which are like one of my favourite things ever. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that it does have that sense of the participation award, which always felt like a little, felt a little like a token thing. But Participation is sexy. We need to give participation needs a new PR agent. Well, let's put it out. We'll put it out to the listeners. We'll put a Twitter poll out and see what the listeners think, whether people who've played in the year should get a medal. I'd be very keen to hear what they think these days. Now, I want to talk about something that was reported by Shari Markson and Jess Halloran in The Australian this week. It was really brave reporting by those two women, I have to say. There was details revealed of the life of Sam Burgess, who is an NRL player and now coach and it alleged domestic violence and excessive drug use and cover-ups by NRL Club South Sydney, including medical staff and doctors. The details of the story were terrifying and I'm not going to go over that here today, but what I want to focus on is how brave it was for those two women to investigate and to report on this and there has been real-world consequences for Sam Burgess and it's being investigated by the police and also by the integrity unit, I think, of the NRL. There's so many parts of this story which it seems now were well-known but largely untold by the footy-loving community and It made me just think, why is that? Is it because footy is still a boys' club and there's a code that keeps men silent on these issues? Why did it take for these two women to write this story? And then just this week on Footy Classified, I don't know if you saw it, but Caroline Wilson pointed her arrow at your mate Nick, um, Xavier Ellis, who you've had words with on Twitter before, um, for his remarks during the weekend's footy coverage when he made a slightly boysy joke, and that I say joke in inverted commas, about the pending birth of his child and how he'd like to synchronise the birth with his opportunity to watch horse racing. I've seen and heard men lamenting that it was just a joke, Xavier Ellis's one, and indeed it was. It was an attempt at a joke, but it was a boys' club joke. And if the Sam Burgess story is the tip of the iceberg, then the Xavier Ellis joke during the footy coverage is a tiny shard of ice that makes up the iceberg under the water. Footy coverage can still so often be just all male, siren to siren, and that is another shard of ice in the iceberg. All these one percenters work to counter the directive that women are welcome in this game and seen as equals. I'm just so curious and so flabbergasted at when will men start calling this out? Because Caro must be exhausted having to always call this crap out. She's constantly made to be the friend's mum who you get in trouble from for doing the wrong thing, regardless of how big or small it is. She's always the one calling it out. I'm just so frustrated by it. All I could think is how exhausted Caro must be. Did you guys follow this story, Lucy? I did. And it's interesting because I've been taking part in a program by Our Watch called Media Making Change, and it's for women in sports media. And one of the things we've been talking about is how 
difficult it can be to sometimes talk about these issues and to how there's a weight, I guess, in always being the people that bring up the difficult stories and and the challenging topics. And it's interesting you use the term one percenters there, Emma, because I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I, you know, say that Patty Kinnersley, who's the head of our watch, we were talking to her about how do you bridge the gap when you're talking about these things with people between the fact of violence against women, which sits up one end of the spectrum, and then you talk about the the way that people speak in ways that are sometimes disrespectful, the things that I guess your joke in inverted commas fits into that category. How do we actually talk about why that's important. And Patty said something that was so astute. She said, violence against women doesn't occur out of the blue. It's all the one percenters that add up until you have an attitude or a culture that allows it. And I found that really important and a really astute and illuminating way to think about. Connecting the reason why it's important that we call this stuff out. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was lucky enough to sit in another Zoom session last week that was out of the Melbourne Press Club and it was called Moving the Goalposts. Jenny Klugman was one of the speakers in that forum and she talked about a report that was commissioned by Vic Health and it's called Buried Treasures and Missed Opportunities in Victorian Sports Reporting. And one of the things it talks about there is just, you know, the sheer difference in the amount of discussion that we have about women's sport versus men's sport. They did this analysis where they looked at the number of words used to talk about women's versus men's sport. It was 10 times as much conversation about men's sport and so when you think about the way that broadcasters speak during men's sport and if they only speak about women in one way and it's kind of derogatory or jokey or dismissive then that carries extra weight because it's you know a space that's just so tilted in one direction. I mean that was also I was in one of the forums with you Lou and Emma one of the things that came up with some of the other journalists was was is that was that emotional weight that emotional labor that you're playing is it trying to be the woman in the space who continues to do it and you know we we at the outer sanctum are often called on publicly sometimes to you know alerted to issues and and you know i'll be honest there have been times when i'll kind of out of soul at this point where we've all just said we can't do it today we just we just don't have the energy today we will come to this we will deal with this we will address this issue but sometimes we just don't have the energy to put the effort and the emotional and psychological barriers that we need to protect ourselves from what is pretty violent the the, the conversation or the the issue being discussed is often around violence but also the abuse that can can come is often loaded with violence it's true nicole i was thinking about how you know daisy pierce has been an absolute revelation to so many people this year during the work that she's been doing. She's not been on the boundary because by virtue of COVID she can't be. So she's doing expert comments and uh, she's been so good. And I'm really intrigued to know, will they walk that back once she can be back on the boundary or will she stay doing expert commentary because people have been absolutely loving her? And the other thing is that it's just been announced that Jackie Felgate will co-host the AFL Brownlow this year for the first time, being the first woman to ever co-host the Brownlow. And it's also because it's this special COVID version of the Brownlow. And will that stick around or will that be, you know, when we get back to COVID normal, you know, will she be relegated and will we just have a men-only presentation of the Brownlow as well? So it'll be really interesting to see. Today on the Mallee we get to end with what was a really great story of the power of sport. I'm going to, I'm going to head Headbutt it over to you, Lucy. Please do. It's a story from US soccer and we saw some pretty impressive allyship last week when San Diego Loyal was leading Phoenix Rising 3-1. One of their players, Colin Martin, who's an openly gay man, alleged that a Phoenix player used a homophobic slur against him. In response, the whole team walked off and forfeited the game. Ironically, these two teams have been planning to hold up a banner saying, I will speak, I will act at the 71st minute. And this was in response to one of the loyal players being racially vilified the week before. It was so impressive to see a team act, especially when playoffs were on the line. So this wasn't just a junk time game. They were up. They were playing for a spot in the playoffs. There is a video of their manager whose name is Landon Donovan, which if you haven't seen it yet on social media, go and find it. It's 
just lovely. One of the things he said was, if we're going to say that and if we're going to wear armbands and we're going to wear rainbow coloured during June and BLM armbands and kneel before the game, that's great. But when the real moment comes and we don't act, then we're all complicit. Colin Martin also responded on Twitter and I just want to read one of the things he said. He said, the response that followed from my coaches, teammates and the entire San Diego Loyal organization was truly moving. They had my back and wanted to make a statement that we aren't going to stand for this hate in our game. And for me, at the end of the day, Colin's team and club showed him that he is more important to them than a game. And that's the kind of support that will have been seen by so many other people and people who might not always feel that they have that support and acceptance and love for who they are. So it was pretty bloody powerful. Go soccer. And also that was a moment of leadership that I will look to forever and a day because, you know, that coach took it upon himself. He didn't have chance to necessarily speak to the players about what he was saying to the other coach. The other coach was saying, no, I think it's fine. I think we can keep playing. He's not going, I'm not going to take him off. The one who had leveled the slur. Allegedly. And Landon just said, no, nah, it's not okay. We're out of here. And I just thought that is so powerful to have that on your shoulders, to make that decision for your team. I was wowed. Sport has actually, sport has stood up this year. Really has, and it just makes me wonder, imagine if the Swans had done that for Adam Goods or the teams they were playing against. Can you imagine how different a place we'd be in right now? And if you think about that on a local, at a local footy, when there's a racial slur or there's a, you know, a sexist slur or any of those things, if, imagine if all of us in that moment, in the heat of the moment, you know, in those public spaces, did our jobs by not doing our jobs, by like walking off, stopping what we're doing and saying, this is bigger. You know, we are here as entertainers, you know, even in the media, as footballers, that's part of what we're supposed to do. But also we're citizens, we're people, we're humans. And advocating on behalf of other people is our job in as part of the human race, if you ask me. So um, imagine if we all just did that in those moments. There's power in the collective. It sure is. I'm Natasha Stott-Desquare and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum Podcast. Now stop me from doing this if you can via Zoom, which you won't be able to, but it's AFLW Draft Night, which has had me singing all night. Oh, yeah, it's ladies night. <laughs> oh, what a night. It's time for draft. <laughs> We did what we could and put our best people on the job to give us a full report of what went down at the AFLW draft. I'm going to hand the ball, I'm going to handball, in fact, to Julia and Dr. Kate. Well, good morning, Julia Kiera. Good morning. I'm sitting down with with you the morning after the AFLW draft over a, a cup of coffee and having a chat. And this morning, there's lots of young girls and women all over the country who've headed into school to do their GAT. Life appears kind of normal on the surface, but many of them last night had the night of their lives and were drafted into the AFLW, which is extremely exciting. Well, we're going to try and run our listeners through some of the big takeaways from the draft. I'll just set the scene and go through some of the highlights. So 57 new players were drafted to the AFLW last night. As predicted, huge congratulations to Ali McKenzie from the Northern Knights, who was taken as the number one draft pick by Richmond. Jess Fitzgerald was taken as the number two draft pick by uh, the Western Bulldogs. And Isabella Lewis was taken as the number three by West Coast Eagles. Uh, there were three father-daughter picks. So we've had a couple of father-daughter picks in pre- in previous draft, but last night we saw Alice Burke, who's the daughter of Nathan Burke, go to St Kilda, Tani Brown, the daughter of Gavin Brown, go to Collingwood, and Amy Smith, the daughter of Sean Smith, who has been in the news, of course, lately as news of his concussion experiences and the lawsuit that he had successfully won recently have come into public consciousness. She has been drafted to North Melbourne, so all wonderful stories. I was particularly pleased to see AFLW and VFLW Premiership player Sarah Perkins get another chance. She's gone to the Gold Coast and her experience will surely be hugely valuable to that very talented but still quite young list up on the Gold Coast. And one of the big surprises of the night was Tessa Levy, who is a basketballer. She plays for the for the Opals, the Australian national team. She was picked up by Richmond. Tell me, Julia, how did you see it and what which club do you think was the big winner last night? Yeah, well, it was a great night, an interesting night. I thought I was paying a keen attention to, to Melbourne because we, we've spoken about before on the pod how Melbourne's, I guess, draft strategy was 
quite risky in that they moved along a lot of their experienced players, you know, Elise O'Day, Maddie Guerin, Alicia Newman, uh, Harriet Cordner. There's more I've missed. <laughs> but they they drafted other players and, and in return they wanted to get a really strong draft hand. So last night was the night for them to, to make it happen. But looking at their list of who they picked up, you can see they've done their homework. Look, they've got Alyssa Bannon at pick five. She's a key forward. I think I don't think they were necessarily overly lucky to get her at pick five. I think that perhaps Ellie and was known to be pick number one, but I think they would have been really pleased that she was there at pick five. She's a key forward, really athletic. I think that's really exciting to think of her and um, Zanka in the forward line as an up-and-coming two-marking targets. Eliza McNamara, who they got at pick 15, she can play inside and outside. I often think of that phrase, and you, Kate, and your kind of commentary watch when someone says that they can play <laughs> Like inside and outside, whether they mean inside and outside the house. <laughs> she probably can. She probably can. <laughs> For those who aren't aware, with the because Vic, Vic players weren't able to do the combine, they just had to send in their two k time to the nominating group, um, and she got a sub seven minute. 2k which um for those that don't know is is quite quick um <laughs> so and, she and julia do you think that she recorded that time in the house up and down the <laughs> well with less wind resistance <laughs> <laughs> not taking anything away from her time no. of course no but the amount of times you'd have to turn that's probably good at pick 17 they've, they've taken Maddie Karras, who's 191 centimetres, which, again, if you don't know, that's quite a tall for a lass. She's from Horsham. Uh, her sister already plays. And I feel like they've just picked people with these amazing attributes who are already playing footy that they will be able to develop over the next few years. And they've got in this year um, with taking a big group kind of in this period of their development, whereas others might be might be doing it over the next few years. Western Bulldogs are probably in a similar boat where they've got lots of 18 and 19-year-olds that they're developing. But I think that they, they've done really well. I, I could list off the rest of um, the players. They've got someone from Gippsland, some from Horsham. They've, they've done their homework. Mick Stanier, I saw an interview with him, and they said that he said that because they haven't had football <laughs> this year, they've, they've been able to do a lot more kind of due diligence with their research, have a lot more interviews, do a lot more reference checks with the girls, I guess their schools and their their coaches, they're able to analyse a lot of the data. So they've had more time to do it and I think that hopefully, you know, this will pay off for them. So given all of that, Julia, and given that Melbourne has did really clear out their list and has taken on board all of this new talent, could we describe them as being in something like a rebuilding phase? Is that even a thing in the AFLW? Uh, I think they're in a renovating phase where you've kept, say, the the two bedrooms, but you're renovating the kitchen and the bathroom. <laughs> I think it's like that because they still have a really strong core that, that now they're supplementing. And I think that when you think about the dynamic of a team, especially in football, which is a 360 game, it's a social game in that you need um, so you need to communicate so much. You need those older, more established players in there modelling it for the rest to kind of come in and learn from and then build on that culture. So I think, yeah, I, I don't know, rebuild makes it sound like there's nothing to start with. I think if you've got Daisy Pierce and Karen Paxman and Loz Pierce and Tyler Hanks, you, you're going okay. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. What trends did we see this year in the draft? Well, we saw that it was it was a, it was a big year to be seventeen and eighteen. I guess just in in terms of who was drafted, there, there was only a handful of mature age players that were drafted, especially in Victoria. There were more so in the other states, and I think that's that's due to the fact that they've had more of a season in their state leagues. Whereas in Victoria, if you think about what was actually available to to list managers, players that come through the AFL, the High Performance Academy, players that were in NAB League, there's just so much information available about those players. There's vision, there's data. So, of course, those are the players that are going to be drafted, whereas other, you know, um, diamonds in the rough that might come through a state league, they didn't have the opportunity this year to come to the attention of recruiters. So lots of 18-year-olds and 17-year-olds have been picked up this year, which is really exciting, and we know that they will. most of them will have come through the full pathway. But as we heard Sarah Black talking Last night, some of them haven't. They've transferred into footy over the last few years. How different would recruitment have been this year 
Julia? Yeah, well, I think that they've had to rely so much, especially in Victoria, and I know that we're talking about Victoria a lot, but Victoria makes up most of the draft because there's so many teams here. They've had to rely on, you know, Zooming with players, data that was available from last year. The other complicating factor is that, that a lot of staff have been let go. The AFL level in terms of the academy staff, the NAB leagues, community coaches are just at home. Their ability, we're working from memory, you know, we're working on when you last saw a player, hoping that they've they've kept up their skills this um, year. So it's been challenging and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, a high draft pick from Victoria versus a high draft pick from another state who's ha- has had a slightly interrupted season, but not in the same way that Victorians has, ha- how they burst onto the scene in round one. You know, I think some will handle it fine, but some might might have really struggled to overcome this disrupted year. I can't let you go and I, without asking you about, I think, one of the most special moments of the, the night, which was the moment we saw Mel Hickey in tears as Georgia Hammond from your club, the Darabin Falcons, was drafted. Mm. Tell us uh, a little bit about Georgia and why it is that the Phelps is such a, a special club and seeing someone drafted from the Phelps is is so touching for someone like Mel Hickey. Yeah, that, that was beautiful. So Georgia is a supremely talented footballer. She can do things. She can kick goals from the boundary. She can roost it from 60. I've seen her kick the most remarkable goals. What's been tough for Georgia is that probably every single draft year she would have thought and I would have thought that she was in with a shot of being drafted and she hasn't been. You know, for for many years, Falcons had a very crowded forward line uh, with Katie Brennan and Darcy Vesio and Georgia sometimes, you know, wouldn't be in that side and, but she has stuck with it and she has gotten fitter and fitter and better and better. And she's played as I've been coaching, uh, you know, I've been coaching Falcons for three years. She's just played such a bigger role in our team her leadership what she's able to do on the field she's a really I love her in the ruck she's a great tap ruck she's very agile she follows up her work so to see someone like that who look I'm not sure of her age actually I'm gonna say mid to late 20s to get the opportunity when every year they probably you know were borderline to get picked was really amazing and there weren't many stories like that they just weren't, you know, everyone else was 17 and 18 who've, who've come through an uninterrupted pathway. So that was lovely. But what, you know, for for those girls that are still heartbroken, it's not over. <laughs> there, A couple of clubs did pass their picks at the end. So the Saints passed one, Collingwood and West Coast. And that would usually mean that they have their eye on someone from another state and those deals will be done now. So the word from Sarah Black was that West Coast have their eye on a couple of Victorian players. So over the next few days, we'll we'll see who else has got kind of a last minute, not a last minute pick, but they've nominated their home state to see if they'd get drafted in their home state. And if not, they were willing to travel. So that's what we're going to see over the next few days. Commiserations, we should say too, to to those women who did miss out, but it would be great to see some of them get another opportunity. And uh, otherwise, huge congratulations to everyone who got picked up this year. We can't wait to see them in 2021. Uh, thank you so much for that, Julia and Kate. How exciting to get drafted in this very weird year and for us all to have been able to sit by and watch it. Can't wait to see those girls. You know so many of those girls that got drafted, they would have been 14 when the AFLW started and they've been able to dream big and I can't wait to see them run out. Now Rana and Alita are heading up the fifth quarter today, but Dr Kate surprised them and all of us really with a fifth quarter opener treat and And there's really nothing left to say, but here is Dr. Kate Bush. She's looking to beat the bottom, well we've got just the thing for her. Sectum chicks with hot tips, we'll get her back into her groove. So she turned on our podcast and she received tips with a strange delight. She felt so bright Back how she was before the tears Back how she was before the year flew by Back how she was when there was no lockdown She was uplifted Oh yeah Fifth quarter, fifth quarter, fifth quarter Yeah, yeah Oh yeah 
to Kate Bush there. I think just, um, <laughs> gosh, I don't think any of us can top that. That was beautiful. There's no way that's going to be topped. But what have you been doing during the week, Rana? Oh, look, I've been, as if there's not enough sport on at the moment, I've been watching the 30 for 30 series. Um, I watch it on KO, but it's really an ESPN thing. And I wanted to just mention one of my favourites so far, which is called Survive and Advance. And it's about um, the North Carolina State Wolfpack in 1983 who were coached by Jim Valvano Um, and basically if you've seen the movie Mighty Ducks it's kind of like (laughs) well it's every sports movie but a real life story they are absolute underdogs they go down to the wire in every game they play they somehow make it to the finals as a wild card option and they just it's the most incredible story, a team that nobody ever thought would win anything. You know, no spoilers, but of course they absolutely do. <laughs> um, they come up against, you know, a, a young Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler um, in the Houston, you know, pie slammer jammer team. I mean, you don't really have to even know basketball to enjoy this. It's just a quintessential sports doco and it's got everything there. It's got a really beautiful depiction of what great leadership can look like and what great coaching can look like. And the thing that I love the most about this doco is that it takes you through the highs and lows, but also the mindset and how uh, Jim Valvano created a mindset of winning and success for this team who frankly should never have had the audacity to win. They just sort of that whole thing around uh, believing and practicing winning, not just practicing your skills, but practicing winning. Uh, it, you know, every, if you're a sports fan, you will love this documentary. I can't recommend it highly enough. It, it's got, it's got every feeling under the sun. Really, I didn't think that I could love a sports documentary more than The Last Dance or The Test this year, but then enter Survive and Advance and it's just beautiful. So I highly recommend, especially now that footy is kind of winding down and it, and it's a good time to watch it too with basketball finals as well. Um, so that is my recommendation for this week. What are you up to, Alicia? <laughs> well, I just love that uh, you've got the coach Gordon Bombay about you there with the Mighty Ducks. So... <laughs> I'm all in. I it, It's on my list to do, so I'm going to watch oh, that. God. It's just so amazing that at the moment it's World Space Week and mm. why do we care as sports fans? I just think that the way that sports people can look to the stars to try to achieve something that's seemingly impossible just goes hand Mm. in hand this week in world space week there's women in australia's space industry talking astrophotography rana when you see nebulas out in space it's just some kind of magic and there's a great TEDx Youth Sydney event by Wurundjeri astronomer Kirsten Banks, and she talks about Australian Aboriginal astronomy and the celestial emu. It's from 2019, but it's uh, you can get to it through sort of searching World Space Week. It's so beautiful, so amazing, and you can reach for the stars. And speaking of stars, a shout out, of course, to Colour My Jumper this week with superstars Emily Ullman and mm. Akech Maku Chiot. Uh, you would know her amazing abilities. Absolutely. She is a star. Absolutely. She's incredible. And so Shelley just knocks it out of the park with Colour My Jumper. But I just wanted to finish by saying, Rana, I don't. No, I haven't sung this year on the fifth quarter because you're not going to hear me do that. But I decided that this season has been quite emotional and I've decided that every lyric can turn into an AFL love poem. Mm-hmm. I've had the time of my life by Bill Medley <laughs> and Jennifer Warnes. <laughs> sums up the season, if you just sort of read it as though you're passionate and angry, even lyrics like this can sound like they mean something. I'll show you what I mean. Mm. Now, I've had the time of my life. No, I've never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's the truth and I owe it all to you because I've had the time of my life and I owe it all 
to you. I've been waiting for so long and now I've finally found someone to stand by me. We saw the writing on the wall and we felt this magical fantasy. Now with passion in your eyes, there's no way we could disguise it secretly. So we take each other's hand because we seem to understand the urgency and just remember you're the one thing I can't get enough of. So I'll tell you something, this could be love. Just remember you're the one thing I can't get enough of. <laughs> so. Oh, Alicia. I mean, look, you've mashed up my two loves, dirty dancing and football <laughs> sport. If I don't see a group of men with arms around each other saying that to themselves, I don't know. I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me uh, with, yes, dirty dancing and football, two of the favorite things ever. This season has just been a roller coaster of emotions. So, just like with the movie, will they or won't they? Who's going to win? I don't know, but I thought mm. I'd throw this song at you. Thank you. You've just made my life so much better. I've had the time of my life, <laughs> Alicia. <laughs> Thank you for that cultural treat, Rana and Alita. And let's always call Kate Dr. Bush from now on. <laughs> um, we're going to get out of here, but any final business? I'm going to come to you, Nicole Hayes. Yeah, well, just a little nice thing. We've talked in the past about pathways for coaching for women in some of these bigger sports. And even though baseball is not enormous in Australia, it, it has quite a lot of grassroots popularity. And the MLB has recruited its first ever female hitting coach. Blue Sox signed Rachel Belkovich. She's an American. Um, who was who does come from such teams as the Houston Astros and a little old team called the New York Yankees. So that's some serious credibility. She has has been brought over because of her new school data driven coaching style. So she is bringing the numbers. She's bringing the stats. Moneyball, Money I know, right? Moneyball all over. Um, she's the second woman in the in the coaching system but the first hitting coach Lisa Norrie in 2017 uh, was the assistant coach for Brisbane Bandits but just amazing to see a sport that has always sort of favoured players and ex-players being aware now that coaching is, is sometimes much more than that and and so there are other opportunities for women who probably haven't had the opportunity to play baseball at a high level involved in the coaching programs. That's awesome and Lucy final business from you? So Dr. Tiana Ernst is hanging up her boots. She is a premiership player for the Bulldogs. She was an inaugural member of the Gold Coast Suns and she juggled playing football at the highest level with her medical career. Tiana was an absolute professional and is our dear friend and we have really enjoyed having her on the pod. We wish her all the best. We sure do. And we lost another giant in all of our worlds this week when Helen Redding died. It's so weird. I just watched the movie about her life. So I'm pleased that she was here to see those accolades come rolling in. But we thought it would be a really nice way to end the show today with I Am Woman and just pay our respects to an amazing Australian woman who has been a leader in voice and in song for all of us. There's nothing else for us to say but go, go footy! footy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.